0: Found them.
1: Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire.
0: And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at LinkedIn.com slash spoken. That's LinkedIn.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
2: And there are cars all over the road on board with car loss signs left, right, and center. Are they going to get through? There was a car off the road. They're very close to the barrier. And that's a huge crash. A huge crash in the Background there, and they will have to very quickly get on site. A massive crash at the start of the race, and the race is understandably neutralised. Red flag right now, and we will hope that someone gets to Roman Grosjean very quickly there because that looked a very scary accident indeed. It's F1 Nation. I'm Alex Jakes. He's Tom Clarkson and TC. I have read about accidents like that, but I've never seen one like that in modern times in HD truly extraordinary scenes during the bahrain grand prix
3: alex we're recording this 24 hours after the event and i'm still struggling to comprehend what we saw in the bahrain grand prix i mean just terrifying scenes and for me the difference was the fire yeah we thought fire was a thing of the past uh, all the safety cells uh, and the position of the fuel tank in the car and All of the safety measures surrounding fuel mean that we haven't had uh, a fire like that, I can't think, I mean, since Berger at Imola 1989. Um, And it was terrifying. That is what made it terrifying. I feel that we've had accidents of a similar violence that have been shown on TV, and I point you to. Robert Kubica's crash in Montreal 2007, Alan McNish punching a wall in the outside barrier during qualifying for the Japanese Grand Prix 2002. So in terms of violence of an impact, we've seen that, but it was the fire that stood out. And that is still such a fresh and shocking image. I mean, just listening to your comms there, it must have been, was it hard to find the words to describe what was going on?
2: Um, I think on the initial view that you'd seen a fireball on impact, you knew immediately it was incredibly serious. You knew immediately that it could be fatal. I don't think anyone believed that we would see an accident with that much fire in modern times. And the incredible thing to me is that Romain Grosjean cheated death by going through an Armco barrier. And I've read what happened to drivers in the 70s who went through Armco barriers without the halo. And it is really difficult to read about the aftermath of those accidents because they were fatal and they were gruesome. He's cheated death there. And then the fire, the extraordinary response to that, Uh, we'll never see a greater escape in Formula One than that, I believe, because Obviously now, steps will be taken and have to be taken to make sure we never see anything like that ever again.
3: And what is so shocking is that the halo was only introduced three years ago. 36 months ago, Roman Grosjean would have been killed yeah. in that accident. And that I'm struggling to get my head around. And and to think that he hasn't got a single fracture. There was the initial thought that he'd broken some ribs. He hasn't broken a single bone In his body, he's got some burns to his ankles, to his to the back of his hands, but he got away incredibly lightly, and uh, just—I mean—amazing scenes. That, as you can tell, dear listeners, I'm still struggling to get my head around. But um, thank goodness he's okay. You know, there's even talk that he might be back for Abu Dhabi. That that would be crazy scene.
2: That would be incredible if he was. I can think of three drivers off the top of my head now: Uh, Charles Leclerc who had Fernando Alonso go over the top of his Sauber and uh, the halo helping him there. Uh, Tadasuke Makino in Formula 2, the halo uh, saving him after contact with another car and the car got airborne slower speed, but still uh, wheel around the driver's helmet and now Roman Grosjean. The halo debate is over. 100%
3: over even you know max verstappen after the race on sunday he was one of the most outspoken critics of the introduction of the halo and he he rightly stuck his hand up and said i was wrong we need no more proof that it was a, a welcome introduction but in a way the halo is just another element in in a safety story that is an incredible story when you go it all started really didn't it aj with Ayrton Senna and Roland Ratzenberger being killed at Imola in 1994. And then there've just been a progression of introductions. And, you know, I remember the hands device, yes. for example, introduced in 2003. Felipe Massa was the first driver to use it uh, in the Italian Grand Prix the previous year, 2002. And I remember chatting to Juan Pablo Montoya after winter testing uh, early 2003. He was so outspoken about uh, the negative effect of the hands device and how he was getting numb shoulders because you you place it underneath the belts and then uh, 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 and then pull the belts tight and he he was just really struggling with it. So there's always seems to be a little bit of resistance from the drivers, but everything has counted towards the events that helped save Roman Grosjean's life. Because let's not forget, it was a 53G impact. So wow. so that hands device absolutely played a role in, in keeping him safe. I mean, just thank goodness too, Alex, that he wasn't knocked unconscious in the accident. Because as it was, I think he was sat in that inferno for more than 20 seconds.
2: Yeah, 28 seconds, I think uh, it was timed out. Incredible. Incredible. We are very grateful indeed to so many people who have made those safety improvements year after year at the FIA. People like Sid Watkins, people like Charlie Whiting and their work has been advanced by others. Uh, It all paid off in the Bahrain Grand Prix. The progress made shown in staggering starkness with those pictures shown all the way around the world.
3: AJ, we should also mention Laurent Mekies, who is now Ferrari's sporting director. He was actually acting team principal in Bahrain because Mattia Bonotto stayed home in Marinello, but uh, he was the FIA's safety delegate when the halo was being pushed through and there was resistance. And so Laurent definitely played his part in the introduction of the halo as well. And two people who were all over our TV screens and you will have seen photos over the last 24 hours who were instrumental in getting uh, Grosjean uh, to safety on Sunday evening were the medical car driver Alan van der Merve and the FIA's Dr. Ian Roberts. And I'm delighted to say, guys, that we've got you with us now. We're talking the day after. Um, you've been to see Roman Grosjean in hospital uh, Doctor Ian, if we could start with you, how is he today?
0: Well, very good spirits. Um, it's, uh, it's very, very bright, and, bright and breezy. Um, doing his uh, his jazz hands with the <laughs> with the dressings. Um, doctors are all very, uh, very happy with his, uh, his progress, and, and, uh, and so are we. Um, so, and he's talking about coming back to uh, to racing. Which, um, I'm not surprised.
3: The extent of his injuries. I mean, it's, there's no fractures. Is that right? And and what? How bad are the burns?
0: Currently, um, the burns are um, being dressed um, on a daily basis. The he does have burns on the backs of both hands, um, and we were given reports as to the extent. Um, generally, the opinion of the specialist. is that the. the good, good results um, from from healing. His foot initially thought that it might have been a fracture. But that is most likely um, to uh, some sort of tissue injury.
2: Well, guys, great to speak to you first of all. Um, I think you're two of the most popular people on the entire planet at the moment after your actions yesterday. I just wanted to know was it down to practice or was it down to instinct? Because I doubt that either of you have ever faced anything quite like that in all the time that you've been involved in your, in
0: your roles. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think um, we try to be very creative when we're thinking about scenarios and when we're thinking about, and this was probably a combination of most of our worst case scenarios. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think the fact that we, we have spoken about it helped a little bit Preparation was probably 80% yesterday and the other 20% was for a man somehow miraculously being able to to do what he did. Uh, And Ian, with his, you know, he's been doing this most of his adult life, you know, looking after people and saving lives, kind of selflessly pushing pushing the limits a lot further than a lot of other people have done, I think. It was incredible. I think just the, the whole thing was incredibly fragile and any any one factor slightly different. Uh, we could have got there a bit slower, or the marshal that ran across the circuit wouldn't have been there in time, things like that. There were so many things that could change the outcome. Perfect sort of example of teamwork, preparation, and then a huge amount of luck and chance that just helped us along.
3: Alan, can I just ask you a bit more about that? The, the marshal that ran across the circuit, so... He would have had to
0: run a good 100, 150 meters, very heavy fire gear. You know? And uh, probably twelve-ish kilo extinguisher, something like that. And it's not it's not fresh here, it's pretty warm. Um, so he he had a lot of foresight to, to actually get there because there were a lot of his colleagues that were actually on the other side of the barrier already. But he had a huge amount of value that was there, able to create this tiny window of opportunity for us to uh, to to jump out into the coast to help. We're getting a lot of the attention because we have a, a platform, but he's actually very key in this whole thing
3: Ian the accident was on your side of the car so I'm guessing that as you opened the door you had the best view can you just describe how you processed what you were seeing
0: as we um, arrived the, there's, a, there's a disconnect and then in a lot of these major uh, incidents there is a disconnect about what you what you see and what you think you should be seeing that was here in front of us just to the to the right there was a, the back of the car pointing in the wrong direction and the question was, um, I won't use the words that we used, where's where's the rest? Um, where's the driver? Um, and I looked to my right and the, that, that's where the, the, the fire was and there was uh, a, a gap in the barrier and I could see Roman and, and the rest of the car behind there. Uh, as I've described it before to people, it was like looking at the open door of a furnace he was there he was moving but there was just a a red sheet of flame in front of him all around
3: so you could see him moving straight away
0: yes and in fact we both seen the the on-car footage and he almost doesn't miss a beat as soon as the impact is done and he's come to rest he's he's getting himself going which is absolutely incredible i mean 53G recorded on the ADR and um, he was still conscious and he, he wanted to get out of there. And you can see that on the video, it's quite, um, quite upsetting to watch. But he, his, uh, his, his want for life was, uh, was pretty much uh, evident in that.
3: You've been a helicopter first responder for much of your professional life. How did that help you yesterday in Bahrain?
0: Probably not so much that. I mean, most of my, most of my work has been in, in intensive care. My hobby, as it were, is, is, is trackside medical work for motor sport. Um, and over the years, I have seen a number of, of, of incidents that um, this one certainly puts everything else into the, into the shade. What you've done before, what experience you have, but then you still have to be a little bit creative because most of the things that we go to, Are out of the ordinary. They're they're, they're beyond what you would would normally see. The the energies that uh, get dissipated by um, these hugely powerful cars uh, sometimes just really does overtake science and engineering to, uh, to hold back.
2: Guys, can I take a step back and ask you why you both wanted the jobs in the first place? It's uh, a role where you hope you're not needed very much during a weekend. you put a lot of practice in, but you ultimately hope that after lap number one, that's your, that's your Sunday completed.
0: To be very painfully honest I didn't want this job. Um, <laughs> I would rather been driving around the circles uh, the other guys.
3: Well Alan, let's not forget. I mean for people who don't know, you, you know British Formula Three champion. Long a few years back <laughs> was it 2003?
0: Vintage, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I, you know, it was very unexpected, but it was just an opportunity. Charlie, you offered me the opportunity on a very casual way uh, 12, 13 years ago now. And at the time, I didn't really see how it would be a valuable experience for me over such a long period. I thought it would be interesting, but never thought it would be what it's turned out to be for me. And it's, it's interesting how pretty much anything you do can make it into a challenge, and you can try and find ways to improve it. And you can work with really impressive people and uh, some not so impressive people. And there's a, you know, there's a, it's it's challenging in, in so many different ways. It's not it's not what I'm used to, but I, I still find it very enjoyable. Um, it's not. I don't get adrenaline on the first lap in the morning. I don't. The, the lights go out. I used to when I started. I think I've been like a, I was like a trained dog when the red lights went on. <laughs> I don't really get that anymore. Um, and even, even yesterday, you know, we didn't feel stressed. I think obviously there is a huge element of stress, but we feel uh, semi prepared and we feel responsible. You know, we feel responsible to, to do what what we can um, because we know we're sort of a last or a bit of an insurance policy. But yeah, it's just a it's a very unique uh, thing to be doing. I never thought I would be doing it. Um, I never thought I'd be working with, with someone like you. It's very interesting. Yeah, from my side of things, I I was uh, merrily working away in the UK at Silverstone as the uh, chief medical officer there, um, doing a, a bit of motorsport, and I, I got the uh, phone call out of the blue. Um, the FIA were for a rescue coordinator. I I must admit, it took me about ten seconds to uh, think about it and say yes. Um, and I, I've enjoyed the enjoyed my my, my time. Since your, your your question about the first lap and then not doing anything, I I would absolutely love every weekend to do the first lap and just sit there and watch the racing and so you know some nice exciting racing. Nobody gets hurt and um, everybody has a, has a great time. So uh, yeah, I I, I I don't want to do anything.
3: Miraculous escape for for Roman. I think we we all agree on that, but. Lessons can always be learned. What, what is the process now in terms of what happens next to try and improve safety? And what are the primary lessons that we've learned? Or is it too early to say yet?
0: I think there are some early lessons. Um, in fact, um, we started discussing this um, over, uh, over breakfast this morning about you know are there any little incremental things that, uh, that we can do to, to make anything anything. Even remotely, like this happens again, what what are the tweaks that we have? What what equipment things can we do in the in the, in the medical car? On a more major scale, obviously, there's going to be an investigation into the, the, uh, the incident. Um, the FIA's safety department will look at it in great detail. They will be extremely interested in all aspects of the um, of the incident, right from the halo. Right the way through to, to to clothing, what improvements can be made? Uh, made there, I think we we've, we've been asked several times about what we feel about the, the halo. Was it um, was it instrumental? Well, I think you know all of the elements that have been on the car have been instrumental in a a favourable outcome to the um, to the to the incident. The true value of all of this will be uh, will be thought out on the subsequent uh, investigation and improvements made where necessary. Alan,
2: you, you, you spoke quite eloquently about standing on the shoulders of giants. How much of yesterday's successful outcome was due to the work done uh, by those who have come before?
0: We, we were there for thirty seconds. There are people like uh, Happy Melo who I've never heard of, rammed things into walls and bent things and cut things and did all sorts of. I don't know how many man hours went into something as simple as the halo. Um, and then you have all of the specifications of the safety equipment. You have all of the concepts that uh, have been developed for medical crews. Uh, you have all you know, the way the cars have been run by AMG. Um, it, uh, you, you can't, uh, it's, it's unimaginable the amount of effort and of hours that have gone into this. Um, and we turn up and we sort of, we're the most visible part. Um, but if any one of those things were, wasn't in place, um, if Charlie wouldn't have pushed a lot of things like the Halo. Uh, it could have been a very, very different outcome. So I think yeah, it's, it's great to to feel like we, we did a good job and things went well. But you know, without all of that stuff that's happened you know, since the 70s, uh, it's, it's been a huge, uh, huge improvement in, in survivability. Uh, uh, you know, without all of that, we would have lost yesterday. So I think, uh, I think that's important to keep in mind.
3: And Alan, does the racing driver in you Understand why Roman Grosjean wants to get back in the car in ten days' time for Abu Dhabi.
0: Hundred no, percent, I completely get that. I think um, there's no way you've been in Formula One; You're, you have to be semi-obsessive to, to sort of be you at know, this level. I completely
3: understand. Guys, many thanks for your time. Great to speak. We had
2: a very unusual start. And um, after that, Lewis Hamilton won a very typical finish. Lewis Hamilton's 95th Grand Prix victory. His 11th win of the year. Frankly, ridiculous stuff. If you look at on pure pace, he could have won all but one of the Grand Prix this year without
3: penalties. 11 out of 15 races. I mean, extraordinary record.
2: The big story, though, for the remaining races of the year, the battle
3: for third place in the Constructors' Championship. So, Alex, it's McLaren, Racing Point, Renault in that order. I think Ferrari are now out of the battle, and I think they're going to struggle because it's a horsepower track coming up in Sakia. So, it's between those three, this battle for. Now, who do you think deserves P3? That is an
2: interesting question. We always have a graphic at the start of the weekend that we show on F1 TV, which is the progress that all the cars have made since the very first round of the year in Austria. And you have to say, McLaren are getting an awful lot from a car that doesn't appear to be as quick or has been developed as much compared to the Racing Point and the Renault. They're squeezing every drop out of the championship. I have to say, uh, after the race, my predominant feeling is McLaren are going to mug Renault and Racing Point, and they are going to find a cunning way to third place in this championship because they are getting results when the car seemingly isn't capable. The team and drivers are making the difference. But with Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz, and a brilliantly run team, they're third
3: operationally brilliant. There's, there have been a couple of sketchy pit stops along the way, and you know perhaps Lando Norris might have finished on the podium in the Eiffel Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, but they really have maximised their opportunities. And I think uh, I agree with you. I think they deserve it. I think Renault uh, have done a, a really good job in terms of how they've stepped up this year. Whereas, and I think the team with the fastest car, Racing Point. Have just let it slip through their fingers. Yes, unfortunate reliability, of course, uh, on on Sunday in Bahrain. But then, you know, you look you look back to to Imola and and that decision to pit Sergio Perez in the dying moments of that race, whereas Daniel Ricciardo stayed out and and, and mugged him for the podium. So, in terms of merit, I think it's McLaren from Renault from Racing Point. There you go. And- Do you agree with me?
2: AJ? I think Renault were always going to struggle to get P3 from the moment that you tipped them to finish in that position, for the Russian Grand Prix. I think the cu- <laughs> Thank the cur- you very much. <laughs> I knew you'd
3: remind me of that. <laughs> the curse of TC has
2: hit strong. You're not going to
3: commit either way, are you, big man?
2: No, I'm not. What I'm going to do is introduce our next guest in this packed podcast, the man who's played a pivotal role in McLaren climbing back up that Constructors' Championship is James Key. And TC caught up with the McLaren Technical Director earlier in the week.
3: Shall we kick off by talking about this battle for P3 in the Constructors' Championship? How much is that dominating your thoughts at the minute?
1: It's obviously uh, very high on our list of priorities as, as, as it stands. It's extremely tight. It could go either way. The competition's very strong. Um, so whilst we've got a, a 21 car with a new engine to finish off and a 22 car to uh, you know to carry on with I think um uh you know that the, the big priority right now is to see the see through these last three races in, in what's been a very very compact season so it's it's all happening very quickly now who's got the fastest car <laughs> <laughs> well you know what I I, I, I a, it's a a very good question um I I I think Racing Point have been kind of leading that charge to be honest um because they they have had Very very uh, good speed uh, as the season's progressed. But equally, it's close enough to to, to make it very difficult to tell because I think as you go to one track to another, you tend to see various teams emerge as as slightly quicker. We know that a tenth can make a massive difference now in qualifying. Mm. So I I think we're seeing um, a real variability there from from one track to the next, the nature of the circuit, the the way the tyres are working for you and so on. Um, And that's really, I suppose, why it's so close now. Um, you know, you, you you can't guarantee where you're going to be on a on, on a Saturday afternoon right now with qualifying.
3: Okay, James. And who operationally has done the best job so far? Do you
1: think? To be honest, I'm not blowing McLaren's trumpet directly here. I, I think we've done extremely well, really, this season, just because we've been consistent. Mm. Um, you know, both drivers have, have performed very well they're very close we've often got both cars in or more often than not actually <clears throat> both cars in q3 um i think but generally reliability has been strong on the chassis side so i i think operationally we've we've done pretty well having said that we're up against teams which which equally have done exceptional job. we've had a fair share of bad luck you know the first lap in russia um, the tire in silverstone um, the engine issues that we've had uh Inspire at the Nurburgring. So we've had we've had our issues, but I think when it comes to just purely going racing, we we have got it together well at the track, I think.
3: And with so much at stake, how much does the Sakir Grand Prix worry you guys? The sort of the threat of the unknown, or does that simile, does that simply excite you? I
1: mean, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great challenge to have. I think as racers, we we like this type of competition you know the stress levels are obviously high every time you you know, you face the next event but um no i think i i think we welcome the challenge it's nice to be in that race um like i say it could could go either way it's so it's so close and uh i don't think it frightens us at all i think we're up for it we 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 know we have the car and the drivers and the team to to challenge for that for that p3 and um you know, I think I think the events coming up, you know, Abu Dhabi is a pretty technical track and we'll have to see there. But I think I think the Bahrain circuit sort of suits our car. And, you
3: know, what about the outer loop or what? I don't even know what we're meant to call it now. But does the threat do, do you see the sort of the, the potential for jeopardy there as a threat? Or, I mean, as an engineer, you would much rather go to a track, you know, or not.
1: Um, I think it represents an opportunity. It's a bit like a new sort of technical regulations. You know, it's, it represents an opportunity in that there's something new to learn there. And it's about preparation. It's about understanding that um, new circuit, uh, doing all the work up front. So there is, of course, a, a, a threat there in that things can go wrong, but it can go wrong for anyone. Equally, I think things like traffic management, this is going to be a very, very short lap at that track. Um, how, how's that going to work? That's an operational aspect. Um, so there's, there's lots of challenges there, lots of threats, if you will. But I, I think it, it also, as an optimist and as an op- optimistic team, I think we, we see it as an opportunity more than a threat.
3: Can we talk drivers now? Lando.
1: How's he improved in year two, do you feel? Um, well, I mean, he had a great year one and, um, you know, to improve on that, um, you know, is, is, is pretty pretty impressive in its own right. But uh, um, I, I think what we're seeing in Lando now is someone who is is really probably more confident in himself, um, probably has higher expectations uh, of what he can achieve now and, and rightly so. Um, and and is, is, you know, with that sort of maturity and experience that you naturally build up after having experienced a year and then or we'll, we'll be it a slightly, slightly different type of season this year, nonetheless, so just building on that. Um, I think we're seeing a, a more rounded driver, but um, he had a good year last year as well. So it's really uh, enhancing what he was doing before, I suppose.
3: When you say more confident, more confident in terms of what he wants from
1: a car, yeah I think both i think I think the technical side of things he's he's just more accustomed to that it's you know these cards are very technical all the engine modes, all the setup options uh the way the tires behave they all take a bit of learning and I think he has you know taken on board what he learned last year and he learned extremely quickly last year I have to say um, and and just melded that into a technical confidence where he feels that you know the the feedback he can give the decisions he can make the way he can interact with engineers are just to step up. Um, but also confidence in himself as well. You know, knowing that he can do it rather than uh, being concerned about uh, what may or may not happen one race to the next. What's been his
3: most impressive race? Dare we say Austria, Austria one
1: end? <laughs> I was going to say Austria. He <laughs> um, hit the ground running. He did. Uh, I mean, I, well, he had two good races actually, but the, the Austria one was i mean we all we know none of us knew where we were we'd had this winter testing it was then the middle of the year a, a different time of year than you'd normally go to somebody's circuits as well um so he's had a lot of good races but um austria does stand out you know it's the beginning of the season we all had to find out what was going on and to get a podium in that first race was fantastic
3: and how big a hole is carlos saints going to leave behind
1: um he definitely leaves a hole because he's he's done a great job for us and i, I think um He's, you know, I've known Carlos for some time now. I worked with him on the previous team as well. And uh, he's an excellent driver to work with. He's very kind of solid, very mature. He always delivers, um, uh, you know, even when we're up against it, just as he did actually last weekend at Turkey. And um, I think uh, we, we, will, we will miss that. You know, there's, a, there's a good relationship and rhetoric within the team with him and, and Lando. Um, that continuity, you miss a bit as well. But, um, you know, so that that will leave a gap. That will leave something that we've become accustomed to over the past couple of years. But his replacement, I think, will fill it extremely well. I think it's great to have Dan on board. And I think uh, having worked with him also in the past, I know he'll bring you know new and different opinions and and, and ways of working to the team, which would be welcome. So there's a gap to fill, but we've got a great guy to fill it. I've forgotten that you've worked with Daniel at Toro, so of course you had.
3: Um, What is his strongest asset, Carlos? Uh, no, no, we're on Daniel now. Carlos is nothing to us anymore, James. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I, I do I do wish, I genuinely wish Carlos the best of luck in, in his endeavors with, with Ferrari. I'm sure he'll do well. Um, I think for Daniel, um, you know, he's a race winner. You know, he'll, he'll bring great experience. He'll bring... Um, you know, a, 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 a lighter sort of jovial touch in some cases as well. We know he's, he's a great character out of the car as, as well as in, but he'll bring a great deal of experience and a huge amount of determination. I think what always impressed me with with Daniel is is this this massive amount of determination he has, particularly when he's driving. You can really feel and see that. You listen to his radio messages and when he's driving, uh, it's a very different different sort of uh, character really to when he's out of the car and more relaxed. He's incredibly determined when he's racing, and I think that with his experience and his confidence, knowing what he can do. Now he's, he's a genuine, uh, well-established race winner. I think all of that will bring um, good confidence to the team and uh, a slightly different um, kind of aspect to, uh, to ha- how we see certain things with the car technically as well. He'll bring you know, good knowledge in for that.
3: As you say, he's a race winner. Do you think he's top draw? Is he right up there with the Max Verstappens, the Charles Leclerc? Is he part of that? Top echelon,
1: if you like. Yes, I, I think he is. I mean, I mean, look, you know, what what is the t- top echelon? I think I think so much is dependent on on factors at the moment with cars and so on. But um, you know, as, as an established race winner, yes, he is. So I think I think you know he can compete at those levels, and we've seen him do it in in past years. Uh, so I, I think I think he's one of those one of those drivers who could step into any of the top teams and do well. We would obviously like to become top team ourselves and I think with his help we can make more progress in that direction but uh, yeah I think we all rate him extremely highly. Brilliant. Well
3: finally uh, the motor that Daniel and Lando are going to be driving next year uh, how far down the road are you with it?
1: Uh, So yeah so we're we're in reasonable shape I think we're um, where we'd expect to be at this time of year despite the, the obvious delays we had earlier in the year normally you'd want to start earlier than we did uh, we obviously didn't start as early as we as, as we'd like to have done for obvious reasons but uh, i think we caught up well um the interaction with mercedes has been fantastic they've been extremely supportive recognized the fact that we had short timescales, and um we, we've worked with them very effectively over the past few months and i think i think we're about where we'd expect to be with uh, the uh maturity of the engine installation and the parts that we're already making for 21.
3: When did the when did you first receive the Mercedes power unit?
1: I'm trying to think back now because we had this long shutdown period. Of course, earlier in the year we started talking to them before then, so we had kind of upfront information and knowledge as to where where they were headed for 21 with their with their engine and some some of the important basics like uh, the types of cooling requirement we would have the the implications on. A car layout with things like the uh, you know the energy store dimensions and this sort of thing which are all pretty fundamental questions some about the electrical installation as well so we um, we had we had that sort of uh, baseline fundamental information up and running uh, prior to um, I suppose prior to Melbourne you'd say because that's really when when we, we stopped racing for a while uh, and then since then we've we've gone into more and more detail as they've continued to develop the 21 power unit, and uh, uh, there's still little bits and pieces that uh, to be finalised there. But but the majority, the bulk of the information is is complete, and you know we we talk to them weekly, you know, regularly actually, just uh, mm. just as you would. So uh, we're fairly we're fairly well sorted with the information we need. I think I think the difference though is that homologation and cost caps etc aside which has an impact on this as well it's just the timing you'd normally want to be working through spring uh, and into summer with with all of that information there and then be optimizing as you get into autumn Uh, whereas really we started off in the summer and we're going to be sort of optimizing very late into uh, now actually and into the into the new year
3: Um, and from a downforce point of view how much have you been able to claw back with the changes to the floor, for example.
1: Yeah, so that's that's still work in progress. We've had, um, obviously, this, this project's been going for a while, although the regulations, the total regulations for the changes for 21 were, were quite late. Um, so, uh, yes, we're clawing it back. You know, it, it was a reasonably big hit to begin with. Uh, those floor changes on the side profile of the floor, which would be quite obvious when we see 21 cars, uh, small monster diffuser and the rear brake ducts. So they all, they all kind of influence a very complex area of aerodynamics around the rear tyre. And uh, really, it's a case of trying to uh, pull that back as, as, as best we can. And, and we are, you know, we're making progress uh, every week on at the moment, but there's still, uh, still some work to do.
2: Great to hear from James Key there. And TC, what struck me about that is how McLaren have so many challenges. They've got an extra challenge compared to the rest of the field, haven't they? They've got to get that Mercedes power unit in the back of the car. They've got to use development tokens to do so. And then they've got the massive challenge of 2022 as well. You're right there.
3: But if there's one team that's used to changing power supplier, (laughs) it is them. Because remember, in this hybrid era, 2014, they had a Mercedes. 2015, they swapped to Honda. Then they went to Renault. And now they're going back to Mercedes. So they've had it all going on, quite frankly, over the last seven years. And um, so, so they're well positioned to do it. Um, James Key, uh, I'm really excited about seeing what he can do with a Mercedes power unit. And, and let's not forget, going back to what we were saying prior to hearing from James, that McLaren have maximized their opportunities with a Renault engine. It's not like they've had a Mercedes in the back this year. They've had a Renault, which is not as good a power unit as Mercedes. And of course, Racing Point have had a Mercedes. So they've done a cracking job, cracking job, and I'm sure they'll continue to do so.
2: Well, looking ahead to Sakia, and we're going to have a Fittipaldi on the Formula One grid once again.
3: Such a fast name. Yeah, it
2: really is. Though.
3: I'm sure Pietro's fast because, you know, there's there are great racing driver names. And Fittipaldi is just, I mean, it conjures up so many memories and a lot of Emotion and talking of emotion, uh, he's the grandson of double world champion Emerson. And uh, such an Emerson is such an emotional person anyway. uh, I'm sure he will be uh, living the dream when he sees Pietro lining up on the grid on Sunday. Um, I'll be honest with you, Alex. uh, I know he's tested for them a bit, but I don't know much about his junior career. Uh, Are you more of an expert than me?
2: Well, I can tell you that he had a horrible accident of his own uh, breaking both legs in, uh, in a crash in the World Endurance Championship at Spa. Really scary accident for him.
3: Oh, I think I've seen footage of that on social media. Yeah. Did, it, did it
2: flip? Yeah, he flips and, and broke both legs and he's had to recover from that. That was in uh, 2018. So he's been a little bit around the houses. He's done a little bit of IndyCar. He's done a little bit of DTM. He is a really nice guy. The team love working with him. And it's great to see another driver get a chance. I feel a little bit sorry for Louis Delatraz on the F2 grid, who's done amazing development work. He's done so many hours in the simulator, but that's what happens if you have two uh, reserve drivers. One person is going to uh, miss out, but... Uh, given the fact that we're almost certainly having a Schumacher in the house next year, somehow Pietro Fittipaldi is he's won the racing surname battle and he'll be on the grid first. It will be a big moment for Brazil, of course, because they've not had a Formula One driver for a while.
3: Well, you could say difficult. You could say easy in terms of I think it's going to be a difficult weekend for the Ferrari powered cars yeah. at Sakhir because obviously the layout that we're negotiating next weekend is just all about speed and power and so they're going to be on the back foot uh, but that maybe takes the pressure off him a little bit just to sort of get used to it all and uh, it'd be great to see what he can do i mean kevin magnuson is such a, a nice guy such a generous guy that i'm sure he'll give him all the support he needs
2: Well, that's just about all we've got time for on this week's F1 Nation. Thank you to Alan van der to Dr. Ian Roberts, to James Key, to Tom Clarkson, to you for listening, and to everyone who helped push safety forward so that Roman Grosjean could step away from that fireball. Get well soon, Roman. Thank you for listening. Subscribe and leave a review if you fancy it, really, at this stage of the season. Who cares? Great to have your company, though. Appreciate it. That's F1 Nation this week. We will speak to you next